This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. In studio with me today, I have Alice Wellens, a licensed clinical social worker, and David Donaldson, a CAC2 and the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome. Glad you all are here. Thanks for having us back. Thank you. Glad to be here. This is part three of our four-part series. Say that really fast. Our four-part series dedicated to addiction and disordered attachments. We're looking at the role in which the way a person views the world and attaches to significant people in their life how that might affect them in terms of their relationships. We've reviewed in the first section, and I would invite our listeners to go to iTunes or to the American Web Radio website and check out links for these shows. Um, Our first one was about attachment disorder as it applies to the person with addiction and their abnormal attachments to their drug of choice, how these drugs or behaviors become the primary focus of this person's life. In series number two, we looked at attachments as it relates to parents, the attachment between parent and child. And Alice, I think, um, as you've talked about several times, the original attachment theory work and um, ideas that Bowlby and others had did come from this kind of attachment between an individual and their primary caretaker, usually their parent. That's right, yeah. So um, one of the things I think might be helpful for us to do today is to talk about, We're gonna, today we're going to talk about the attachment between partners. And that can take a lot of variations, um, attachment between partners where there is addiction. So what we're going to do, I think that I think what would be helpful is for us to review some of attachment mm-hmm. and go over what the attachment styles are quickly so we'll all have a working understanding of what we're talking about because this is where it's, this stuff really shows up and really heats up. Um, it can get it can get heated up pretty quick with partners, especially when there's addiction. And we'll explain why from all different all different aspects from the neurobiology because all that stuff sits right in the same area of the brain. Love is sits right next to the limbic system and the amygdala and all of that and attachment weaves its way into every bit of it so it's a pretty um, fascinating thing and it's a pretty fiery thing too well and I I think it's just crucial in the sense that the attachment relationships that couples have will foster addiction continuing and thriving um, but they can also foster relapses and and if you can help a couple relax and breathe and get beyond the attachments and understand the attachments, it can really also help foster recovery. So it's going to be a part of the, the dynamics and, and to have awareness of them and help them begin to address them um, in, a, in a safe and, and supportive way is just crucial. Absolutely. And that's something I hope we'll really go over maybe in the last segment is what to do now that we know all of this information, how to help couples um, regulate themselves, regulate the system of their relationship, um, because the 
the neurobiology regulation concept is something that's new and is crucial. Absolutely. So today, you may have guessed, we're going to talk about disordered attachments between a person with the disease of addiction and their significant other, whether that's a spouse, a partner, uh, someone with whom they have an intimate relationship that is unlike other intimate relationships. The couple is a very interesting kind of relationship if you think about it. We will always have our parents. They may not always be with us, but their influence will be for the rest of our lives. And if we have children, those children will have that same level of attachment. We might want to sometimes, but we can't <laughs> disengage from our parents and our children. At least emotionally, we can't. But with a couple we can see the attachment really play out much more volatilely, much more intensely, and sometimes much more pathologically. And the attachment within the couple can also erupt and they can disengage. You can leave your partner, you can leave your spouse, you can get a divorce, you can move, you can get a restraining order, whatever you need to do. So it's very interesting, though, that the level of intimacy that a couple has in terms of often uh, a sexual intimacy and a sharing of things like where they live and responsibilities in the home and financially and um, also in this very intimate relationship is different than the relationship, hopefully, that you have with your parents or your children or your friends or your coworkers, your boss, your neighbor. This is a very interesting way, I think, um, to look at these attachment disorders. So for those of you who have not caught the other uh, segments, and we do hope you'll join us next week when we look at the attachment between a parent who has the disease of addiction and their children. But if you haven't, we want to just review really quickly what we're talking about when we talk about attachment and how these attachment um, disorders or disattachments or however you want to say that, how they form and how they affect us for the rest of our lives. Right. So, you want me to jump in? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so, just to give you a quick historical overview, um, the main father of attachment therapy is a guy by the name of John Bowlby, who was born in England at the, around the turn of the century. And this was really his life's work. And then um, Mary Ainsworth and then later Mary Main picked up and, and added to it um, up into the 70s and 80s. But the main issue that we're, the main story really that we're that we've come to view attachment is that there are basically four attachment categories um, there's secure attachment and that is when the infant and the toddler the baby felt that they had equal access to explore their environment and the ability to return to safety when needed that there was and that could be emotionally physically, any way that they felt like they needed to come and they needed to go. And there was flexibility and resilience and everything was basically good enough. Um, 
So when we talk about a secure functioning attachment style in the terms of a relationship, we, we try to talk to couples about how to create a secure functioning relationship. And that's where it fast forwards to how does all this apply to doing couples work, especially couples work where there's addiction. The second attachment style is the avoidant attachment style. And the main thing that we see in the avoidant attachment styles are that there is a blasé attitude towards the babies when their caregiver comes and goes. They don't display anxiety or frustration or sadness or fear, but when they're hooked up to heart rates and cortisol monitors, they're experiencing a lot of distress, but it never shows. And what you might see, we'll talk about how all these show up in couples, especially couples where there's addiction, but what you might see here are people who don't know how to get their needs met. They don't trust that their needs are going to get met. They don't trust environments. They um, are trying to self-soothe in other ways. And so that's kind of where you start might, might start to see how that will inform the couple's work. Um, the ambivalent attachment... Um, Basically, they are preoccupied with their main caregiver, so they are trying to explore their environment, but they're also distressed about what's happening in their environment. So when the mother leaves, they might be distressed, and when the mother comes back, they are angry. They want the mother to come back, but they're angry that the mother left, and they're distressed. And so there's no sort of safety in the coming and going for them. Um, They... Um, they see a lot of attachments as and connection as rejection um, and unpredictability. So they see a lot of rejecting and unpredictability in the mm-hmm. world. And then the last one, which Mary Main um, was sort of put together um, at the end, is that this is disorganized attachment. And that's when the attachment figure is to the infant and the, or the baby is simultaneously a secure base and someone of danger. So they know that this attachment figure is imperative to their survival, but they also are reading it as danger. And um, they really, really struggle with seeing any intimacy, any connection as secure. They, they are very apt to be people who aren't going to get in relationships or aren't going to get into relationships where there's a lot of intimacy at all, don't have very many interpersonal coping skills. But really want them. But want that. And that's that's an important part. All of these, all, you know, we're born wired for connection. We are wired to connect. And so we want that. We're gazing outward. Um, we're taking our cues from the environment. I think last week I mentioned we start picking up and, and very, very minutely mimicking facial expressions at 42 minutes old. So we're wired to look towards the outside world and want to connect. And so when that's disrupted, right, wrong, actually happened, didn't happen, however it, ha- however it happens, if it's disrupted, it's very dysregulating to a person. And what happens in, in interpersonal relational experiences is that you are always um, – you're, you're gaining information from your interpersonal experiences, and then you put it into memory. And then you are acting interpersonally from memory. Right. So if your memories go back, you know, they're this disrupted, then a lot of times after that first six to 18 months, 
um, of that you know intense wonderful connection then you're going to start interacting relationally from these old memory places which you may or may not even be aware of but we are but we are <laughs> um, when um, Ainsworth um, did her stranger situation mm-hmm. and looked at the different styles it's normal for a baby to be anxious if their mother or their caregiver leaves them it's normal for them to look for reassurance it's normal for them to have some of these feelings and if the uh, caregiver is nearby accessible and pays attention to them the child will eventually be able to explore, not worry so much, maybe come back and touch and interact with their caregiver, but then the world becomes this wonderful place to look and explore. And according to her studies, um, about 60% of people have a good enough relationship that they can develop this secure attachment style. The more disruptive, the more um, difficult attachment styles are about 40% of the population. And while that might not seem like a lot, that is a lot of people that have had difficulty where the parents have either... Uh, been very anxious themselves and tried to keep the baby uh, close by and fearful they're going to fall, transferring that anxiety and that fearfulness to the child. Ambivalent, I don't care, go away, stop bothering me. paying attention sometimes, sometimes not paying attention, and then seeing the attachment style where the caregiver may show concern and affection, but may also be somewhat abusive or neglectful at times. And so these kinds of interactions early, often before we even have conscious awareness, these kinds of ability to view our world and feel close, secure, or not, um, they develop so early, we may not have memory of them, but they do impact us. And they show up when the couple's in your office working on things. All that we just talked about is is where all of this is coming from. Exactly. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how this might appear in a couple's relationship. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Peter Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. 
Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is Detailing Addiction. I have with me Alice Wellens, and her practice is here in Atlanta. She specializes in working with adults, um, with families, individuals, and couples. She uh, works with folks who have the disease of addiction and also people who have other uh, psychological or um, difficult situations. Her website is www.alicealwellens.com. That's alicewellens.com. You can find out information about her practice, more information about attachment theory and more information about uh, some of the significant work that she does. So thank you for being with us, Alice. Thanks for having me. We also have David Donaldson, who is the CEO and clinical director for the Atlanta Healing Center. So thank you, David, for being here with us, too. Very glad to be here. We are um, talking about couples, couples who have one or more (laughs) members of the coupleship that have the disease of addiction because I think that this is often the place where we see a lot of very emotional, very high energy, very disruptive kinds of relationships when someone has been active in their disease. I thought it might be helpful to look at Hazan and Shaver's um, description about what a healthy adult attachment looks like so that we can then contrast some of the other attachment styles and problems that we see among folks who have the disease of addiction and are in relationships. So if you're in an adult romantic relationship, an intimate partnership, both members feel safe when the other person is nearby and they feel responsive. So they're aware of each other. They're part of each other's needs. They engage in close, intimate body contact. There is physical contact. There may not be sexual intimacy, but there is this very important physical, intimate contact. Both feel insecure when the other is inaccessible. They're aware that their partner is preoccupied. They're aware that their partner may be troubled, may be anxious, may be worried. And they respond to that. They share uh, discoveries together. They play with one another's facial features. So 
I don't know if you've seen couples that have been together for a long time, but they often have these nonverbal cues and communications, their private jokes. They roll their eyes or they grin or twinkle or eye. There are these ways, and again, as, as you're going back to what you were saying, Alice, about the baby making eye contact, mm-hmm mimicking the gestures and responding to the facial expressions of others that's so important and they may even engage in baby talk i don't know how many couples do that but this idea that they have their own communication Mm -hmm. style that they understand and respect and um, that would be what you might see in a secure attachment so if we were to ask a question of you to help you maybe decide whether you have a secure attachment style or an anxious or an avoidant or an ambivalent. Um, They suggest three questions. Number one, I am somewhat uncomfortable being close to others. I find it difficult to trust them completely, difficult to allow myself to depend on them. I am nervous when someone gets too close, and often others want me to be more intimate than I feel comfortable. So that's one scenario. Uh, Number two, I find it relatively easy to get close to others and am comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me. I don't worry about being abandoned or about someone getting too close to me. And number three, I find others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. I often worry that my partner doesn't really love me or won't stay with me. I want to get very close to my partner, and this sometimes scares people away. So, in thinking about your own relationships, maybe you can see some of the characteristics that you might see in a secure attachment style and some of the less secure attachment styles. Yeah, I, I think that th- that's, that's great because what we talked about last week, we talked about that system always trying to create homeostasis. And so a couple is always trying to create homeostasis. And it's, they're always trying to do the, all the things you just mentioned. Um, are you close enough? Are you liking being around me? Are you, am I feeling seen? Am I feeling heard? Am I feeling gotten? Um, you know, that's really the core of what we're trying to do. And so couples are always trying to fine tune that. It's always, it's like that old radio station knob. You were, when you try to just keep fine tuning it just to get that radio station come in, come in cl- crystal clear without the static. Couples are trying to do that all the time. And, you know, I love Stan Tacting's work. He talks about the couple is always trying to regulate itself. And the, the cool thing is, is we can now use neurobiology to do that. Mm-hmm. And we can use information to do that. Um, because what happens when you bring an addiction is the very thing that you have chosen to be your most safe place and to maybe even do some attachment repair work. You've made yourself vulnerable to that. You're not consciously thinking that when you're out picking your partner, but that's what's going on underneath. Um, When you bring in an addiction, and we can talk about the different scenarios that might come in, um, it's a threat, and you, you feel that it's a threat to your very survival. And so all of these things that you're trying to do and trying to fine-tune become not possible. You don't feel close. You don't feel safe. You don't want to be intimate. It's th- you, you want to, but it feels dangerous. Um, so addiction just, just really starts to disrupt um, 
these these little places that that are our oasis around trying to repair a lot of our attachment stuff. Well, and what's so interesting for for me in listening to those three questions is is that you can easily see how the first scenario and the third scenario could meet up together in a mm-hmm. bar and think that they are meeting <laughs> each other's needs in an amazing mm-hmm. um, spiritual connection. You know, they'll and they'll often talk about I met my soulmate, and you can see this this dynamic of this person needs to be taken care of, and this person needs to be loved and fixed and. Um, I'm the perfect person to be able to give all that. And so those attachments are being drawn to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And and real often in settings where chemicals are a part of the equation, Mm -hmm. where they're using alcohol Mm -hmm. to relax and and socialize, or they're using marijuana to kind of connect with each other. But then as one of them, or even both of them, begin uh, um, increasing their use and their relationship is becoming much more connected to the chemical than to the other person, the insecurities related to these different styles also becomes to really to, to manifest. And so you'll have the jealousies or you'll have the um, abandonment and I'm just going to leave you dynamic going on between the two when, um, when that addiction, which was initially part of the glue, becomes, becomes the um, corrosive element. Right. And that's, you know, I ran a spouses group, um, spouses and partners group in a treatment center for about six years. And we would have some people who would come in and out and then some people who would stay for, for a couple years and do, do some work. And one of the things that you would hear partners who really started to drop in and do their own work and get curious about themselves, because as we know, the focus is always on the addict. Right. It's, it's on the disease, and, and it's that happens to be in the addict at first is the first big cue. Um, but, you know, they'll, they'll say over and over and over again, I can walk into a room and not know one person in the room, and within an hour I'm engaged in this intense conversation with an addict. There's some energetic... <laughs> There's some energetic quality, and we could wax all day on, on <laughs> what is that thing, and, and it's, it's a wonderful conversation. But partners, there is a draw. There is a meeting each other, a knowing each other. Um, you know, all the attachment theories talk about they, they, they are drawn to each other to repair those very old things, even though they would never say that in a million years. Um, you know, and and that's where partners have a chance to really start to look at their own work. Why am I picking this same person over and over again? What am I trying to heal and repair within myself? Um, and that goes back to looking at your attachment styles and looking at where, you know, where are some of these things that need to be healed and having to do it yourself. One of um, my favorite therapists was Virginia Satir. And one of her famous quotes was, people will always pick what's familiar mm-hmm. over what's healthy mm-hmm. until what's healthy becomes familiar and it's that whole same dynamic that these these people um, are attracted to what's comfortable mm-hmm. even though what was comfortable was very de- devastating throughout their entire life and that's that implicit memory we were talking about earlier they they have this memory of this is familiar from their early attachment mm-hmm. figures even though it doesn't feel safe or right it feels familiar so they are drawn to that on this unconscious level and it's you know that's that's strong stuff you know we, we pick partners and have kids with from these places right <laughs> and the scary thing is 
as you were saying, we see the repeated pattern until someone really takes some time out to get into recovery, either for codependency or from the disease of addiction or, or chooses to do some individual or couples work. They will continue to be drawn to the exact same person. They may look different. They may sound different. Their history may be different. But how they end up making you feel is always the same. And it's that same attempt to try and repair that dysfunctional attachment that we had early on before we had words, before we had memory. This same kind of attachment style is what we're drawn to because, David, as you said, we're drawn to what's familiar. And until we get healthy, we are going to continue to attract to us and be attracted to be attractive to others who have our same yin and yang and I don't mean that in a healthy way necessarily (laughs) what what we don't repair we repeat and you know I think it's really important to also name that um, a lot of times these these things are unconscious and Part, part of the work for the spouses in recovery is to learn what their own attachment deficits are and work on recovering that. We can go into the rest. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to take a break. We'll continue this in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and we're on America's Web Radio. We have Alice Wellens and David Donaldson with us today. I would remind all of you that there will be CEUs, Continuing Education Unit credits, that will be available for each of these series, each of these individual shows, and as a series together. And we'll be giving you more information about that at next week's show. So. Um, please feel free to go back and listen to other shows if you miss them, and please join us next week. We're talking about attachment styles. We're talking about the relationship and when someone has the disease of addiction, how this further disrupts a potentially already tenuous relationship <laughs> attachment. And right before um, the break, um, you were th- talking about some of the ways in which um, the partner in particular may be struggling. Yeah. It's really hard, as, as you were also saying over the break, is that there's, there's, this, there's this survival piece that starts to happen in couples when there is an active addiction. As we've talked about in some of the past shows, the addict's, you know, fight or flight system is engaged and activated and they have this belief that if they don't use they're going to die i have to use i have to use i have to use and the partner's belief is if i don't connect up with this with this addict with this partner i'm going to die now these aren't their direct thoughts that they're having but this is what they feel inside right which is why you see partners sometimes doing really crazy things. They are just trying to plug in, and they are just trying to get their fix, their connection, because they want to feel connected. Because at a primitive, primal level, if we don't feel connected to our secure attachment figure base relationship, we we feel from a biological level, we feel threatened by our our very survival feels threatened so a lot of stuff is happening internally when there's active addiction in a couple we we can certainly have to take into account all the other crazy things that are happening Mm -hmm. with active addiction when there's a couple so you have a lot going on in the system Mm -hmm. i remember um uh, a particular wife at a family group session talking about how when she got the thought in her head that her husband was drinking, that she had to go through his phone, that she had to go through all of his old hiding places, that she had to go through the drawers. And she knew in the midst of all of her searching that she was being insane. Mm-hmm. And he would say, you are being insane. And she knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what she was beautifully able to express to the group was, I had to find that he was lying to me to know that I wasn't crazy. And it's that same sort of dynamic that's going on between the two of them because, in in fact, he was lying to her, um, and she needed her own sense of security to be restored by her actions. Right. And that's one of the really cruelties of addiction is it really lies and betrays to the people, the people that are closest to it. And that's really, really hurtful, you know. We see that lie with the person with addiction. We see the lie that their brain is telling them that the solution 
to all of their problems, all of their stress, their difficulties, is the drug or the behavior. That's the solution. They don't accept that that is the problem. So there's that lie. And then there's the the literal lies or the lies of omission that occur between the couple as the person with addiction is trying harder and harder to continue that relationship with the drug or the behaviors. And still also continue this relationship with the partner and needing to cover their tracks, needing to tell the stories, needing to make excuses, and the partner wanting to believe the excuses and yet, on the other hand, knowing in their heart of hearts that that's not true, and the anger and the frustration on both sides as they're not able to accomplish what they need to. The addict will never be satisfied, and the person with um, uh, with whom they have a relationship is never going to be satisfied that they're safe, that things are okay, that this is going to get better. And so both are feeling the same things, having very similar reactions, albeit in a slightly different way. Right. And then when you have children in the mix, you know, you find that typically at some point the non-addicted partner makes a switch and they have to protect the kids. And there's this click that happens at that point um, and that the attention goes to them. And, and that's a biological imperative too, especially depending on the age of the children. The click probably happens earlier the younger the kids are. But that's this thing of you can't be safe for me, but I have to be safe for these children. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a sad piece because what we know is, is that what we hope is, is that eventually there's going to be recovery. And we see all the work that it's going to take for this system to try to repair mm-hmm. and integrate back together. And that's a long, long, long road takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. and a lot of insight and a lot of Mm self-honesty while the person with addiction needs to get honest about with themselves about how this substance or this behavior has affected them and understand that it is the problem not the solution to the problem the um, spouse or the partner the other person in the couple needs to also get real honest about their own attachment styles Mm -hmm. and their managing their own anger, their own fear, their own abandonment issues. This is a very complicated dance. Ideally, it should be done together, Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that a little more in our last segment. Um, It would be great if it can be done together. Sometimes, though, if one or the other is unable or unwilling to do that work, we do sometimes see a lot more disruption to the couple and and maybe even divorce or separation. Right, you do. And, you know, it's hard, I think, for partners to look at what's my, what am I doing wrong? Why do I need help? Why do I need therapy? And that could be a whole series of shows in and of itself, (laughs) part two of our series. But, you know, one, like one way to think about that is I've had a lot of people who do drop down and start doing their own work and are able to, to not have the focus be on the, the addiction, but they'll start to notice these patterns. And, you know, one pattern would be something like, 
you know, the, I never really had to think about myself when I was with the addict because they were so, they took all my time and they were very charismatic and they were very twinkly and they were a lot of fun. And, you know, I just kind of went along with that and I never tapped into my own sense Mm -hmm. of who I am in the world. I let myself get lost and shadowed by all of this until you don't even, I don't even know who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. And so then that becomes the work, is learning who you are again. But then the echoing back question of, well, what happened that that would be in that, that would be something that would be familiar to you to kind of let yourself be, be swept away by another person, you know, more than just that original swept away. Right. <laughs> that, that happens in, in most people right. in the initial stages of, um, of coming together as a couple. The the recovery from addiction takes a lot of courage, but the recovery for a family takes a lot of courage too because it is so easy to keep the focus on the addict and not really allow themselves the opportunity to look at their own their own issues that they've brought into this. It also as you said a few minutes ago, David, it also may increase the risk that the person with the disease of addiction may not get well either. Mm-hmm. If both parts, both partners are not working a, a program of recovery or doing some individual work, having some therapy, then the person with the disease of addiction is going to be constantly aware they're being watched, that they're not trusted, that there is suspicion that any time they are late or they look a little off or they're grumpy or they're whatever, the automatic thought on the partner's part is they're using again or they're lying to me again. And that automatic thought then creates a behavioral reaction Mm -hmm. in that person. Again, it's not necessarily conscious, but suddenly there is this high alert. There is this adrenaline or cortisol rush, and the reaction that they have, I hear it over and over again, and I'm sure you have too. Well, if I'm going to be accused of it, right, I might as well be doing it. (laughs) And so... Everybody goes. <laughs> and we're off to the races because, and sometimes just a simple question is not necessarily an accusation, but because the emotions are so high and because the trust on both sides is so low, the person with addiction is not trusting their partner with the truth about what they're doing, and the person in that relationship is not trusting their partner who's active in their addiction. That heightened awareness creates a lot of intense emotional reactions, anger, rage, fear, that gets acted out and can further damage an already shaky relationship. It's like the couple is saying, I want to get close to you again, and I'm terrified. So it's sort of like that disorganized attachment. The thing that you really want to be secure and close to is also the thing that's a source of danger to you. And so navigating that takes a lot of work, a lot of hours, a lot of commitment. And it's when it when it works, it is truly one of the most amazing things you've ever seen. When you see a couple who who goes the distance and is able to do that. 
The beauty of it, even if the relationship doesn't survive it, and this is one of the things that I often encourage people, you're going into this couple's work to heal you Mm -hmm. so that you become a healthier person to attract a healthier person. Hopefully that will be your partner who's also getting healthy and the two the two wellies make a wellie. Um, the two sickies don't make a wellie, by the way. But the idea of it is worth it, even if the relationship itself doesn't survive, to heal yourself enough to not continue to make those mistakes, to stop the suffering and the difficulty that you're carrying with you from early, early childhood. But and the other part is that most of these couples have, have kids or have family that are part of the glue that's keeping them there for the session um, because if there wasn't some of that, of that glue already, mm-hmm. they would have gone separate ways. And, and so helping them recognize that even if you don't work out as a committed couple, you probably still have to have interactions for the next 18 years or so. So you might as well go ahead and do this work. Might as well do the work. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what that work looks like. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. Again, if you're interested in learning more about Alice Wellens and her practice, please go to www.alice, that's Alice with a Y, Wellens, W-E-L-L-O-N-S dot com. If you're interested in learning more about Atlantis Healing Center, please go to atlantahealingcenter.com and you'll learn more about families and the importance of family work, couples work, in terms of full recovery for the person with the disease of addiction. So we've discussed that couples come into a relationship with the attachment styles that they developed over their lifetime, starting in early infancy and um, and without therapy may continue. Hopefully they have the secure one. And we've talked about the relationship that happens when addiction becomes part, the third, the third party in the relationship. So what does it look like for a couple to come into a recovery process? And what are the things that are helpful for people? Well, I think, I think first of all, it's really helpful for us to make sure everybody understands that just because you might look back and start to gather information and look at your attachment style and see some of the ruptures that might have happened, that's not necessarily um, like a commentary on who you who you are now and how you're going to have every relationship now. That's you know we are resilient, flexible. Um, human beings who can grow and evolve and use tools and resources that are more and more available to us every day. So um, it's just helpful to know what some of your vulnerabilities are so you can know what to look for as you make choices in the future. All that being said, um, you know, I work with couples who have active addiction, and that's a really difficult scenario. Yes. And that the work in that scenario is one thing. And the, really the work in that scenario is about safety and security for everybody in the family. And it's about working on getting the addict stabilized. And because not a lot of work can happen until that happens. Because you don't want a partner or children or anybody coming in and making themselves vulnerable when the disease is really just going to take that and, and, and hurt you with that. So that's one way that that um, it it looks. But and that highlights yeah. something that you actually don't hear about a whole lot in the therapist community, in the sense that you are working with a couple where active addiction is present. Because so mm-hmm. often the message is, you need to go get clean and sober, <laughs> and when you're ready, come back and we can do this work. And then the the recovering spouse is just kind of left, right? With with okay, what do I do next? Right. There's another scenario, which is a lot of therapists don't want to know that there's an active addiction. <laughs> right. <Hang on. laughs> big problem. Another big and, problem. And some of it is they just aren't trained in that, so they're not listening for that, and that's not coming up. The other dimension of that is it's really hard, and so it is so easy to just not hear a lot of these things. Um, so you don't have to deal with it. 
So, you know, there's there's that scenario. And and I'm certainly very guilty myself of going along with, you know, you're assessing somebody, you're working with somebody for a few months or even sometimes a year or more, and then all of a sudden, boom, there it is. You know, it's out now. There, The, the system has consciously or unconsciously agreed to start talking about it. And, um, you know, I'm certainly guilty of thinking, oh, my gosh, okay, this is a whole different thing. <laughs> Here we go. Um, do I have it in me to do it one more time? <laughs> um, so, you know, so there are lots of scenarios of working with addiction. Mm-hmm. But what to do when you have a couple who there is some stabilization and both of them have now turned towards each other and are saying, let's, let's take a look at this and let's start mm-hmm. working on it. Um, I like what you said, Susan, about um, the, uh, the the couple that the goal is not necessarily that the marriage is saved. The goal is let's find out what what needs to happen for everybody mm-hmm. to feel like they're safe and healthy and kind of in the right relationship that they need to be in. So, and taking that pressure off is sometimes very helpful unless you have one of those anxious attachment styles and then it sounds like the therapist is saying this is over and you're not going to have your relationship which panics them so it is really important as a clinician to be aware of how your words may be affecting but often for for a lot of uh, of couples to just say this is about getting everybody healthy and safe and you know, and that's our expectation. Right. Can can take some of the pressure off, particularly if one or the other of the spouse is really not sure they want to stay in the relationship. It is a way to keep both parties working towards health and safety that um, may result in their relationship being saved. Absolutely, may result in them continuing on in their life with more healthy choices and better relationships. Yeah. So one of the first things that we talk about um, is, and this comes from the Imago work, is that we have to close off all the exits. We have to close off all the dangerous things that are threatening to the safety of a relationship. And that, that in and of itself can be a long-time conversation. That can be many, many, many sessions around looking at what are the things that create danger in the relationship. Of course, active addiction, affairs, overworking, now computers, phones, screens, iPads, all of those things that take you out of standing you know, face-to-face with your partner um, and looking at what's our relationship. So a lot of times that the first piece of couples therapy is talking about what are the exits and how do we close those exits. And sometimes that in and of itself is the work. Now with addiction, it's a little different because there are clearly some exits. The partner has usually also created some exits to deal with it because the system's always trying to create homeostasis. So, you know, you just sort of make all these adjustments and they're not always good. So you're really working on what are some of the, the things we've done? What are some of the things we can start to do to create safety as we start staying in the middle of this circle and look at each other? And that brings up the next thing, which is the gaze. So that's a really important thing. Mm-hmm. We talked two episodes ago about the mother's gaze and how that really is, mm-hmm. is wiring and rewiring in the brain. Couples can do that. They can start to regulate each other's nervous system live, right there doing the couple's gazing. Um, so gazing is really important. It really 
it it taps into engaging that parasympathetic nervous system by saying, I'm here, I'm present, and I'm safe. And you do that without words. So it's the couple learning to regulate their system. That, that I can just picture as being incredibly threatening to a couple when active addiction is, is just stopped. You know, Because yeah. when we're with them, generally it's the early parts of recovery. And mm-hmm. and I can picture if you're asking a couple to look at each other that, that there's daggers coming between <laughs> these eyes and that, that one of them's feeling immense guilt and the other's feeling immense responsibility. And, and shame. Mm-hmm. And shame. And, and how do you keep from murder happening yeah. right in your, there in your office? <laughs> Well, so, yeah, so there, so that can bring up a lot. If if they start to feel safe, then, then they might start talking about some of that and giving them some dialogue. So I have several dialogues that I use that help couples stay in a structure so they're not just free-forming, free-forming because they are raw. And it does not take much because they are so exquisitely attuned to each other. It does not take much for a misread mm-hmm. cue, a facial expression, to, for them to then feel threatened and you know disengage. either attack or run away yeah yeah so and one of the things that is really interesting as we're assessing our patients we have my health my brain health report and part of that online neurocognitive test looks at people's ability to read nonverbal cues mm-hmm. and very common, both in our neurofeedback assessment and in that particular assessment. We see a lot of our patients are not able to accurately identify facial expressions, and they are responding as they think is appropriate. It may be very inappropriate, and so having that kind of a dialogue and being able to identify how did you hear that? What what was the communication there? Because they may have deficits in being able to actually understand what their partner is communicating to them. So educating them on that, you know, that's really important. Um, so once a couple is able to start doing some things, we talk about doing really small things, and we talk about just just having it be just that one thing. And it's not doesn't mean that everything else has to be okay or everything else isn't up for a difficult discussion, but they're trying to learn to reconnect. They're trying to really prime the pump of their own neurobiology to create safety so they can explore. So one way to do that um, is touch. And so whatever way they can do that, you know, a hug is really one of the best ways because they can um, hug for over 30 seconds. Um, if you connect five times during the day at wake, at leaving the house, um, in the middle of the day, coming home at the end of the day, and going to bed, that you have some connection at those five times of the day. And then this is my all-time favorite. I know I'm running out of time. But um, gratitude, that brings in the language of the program. So you list three things that you're grateful for in your relationship. You list one thing that you hear your partner saying, and you list one small behavior that you want to work on. And couples who will do that like twice a week as a part of their regular check-in, major success. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.